welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. sex educator Amber Mallory. Join us for a conversation all about understanding sex within culture. Together we talk about the assumption that all people with penises are aggressive, navigating the use of degendered language, and what it means to be a woman. Y'all, that question alone, what does it mean to be a woman? Do I identify with my gender identity? These are interesting conversations to have, interesting thought experiments, because if it's not our genitalia, if it's not our hormones, then what does it mean to identify with your gender? Just some interesting questions to ask, no right answers here, but we dive into that and so much more in today's episode with Amber She opens up about her journey coming from a small conservative farm town to being a sex educator. Hey, that is a journey in and of itself, and she has so much wisdom to share with navigating the ups and downs of that alone, you know, coming out to your family about being a sex educator when they are really conservative. That is a lot. So Amber, thank you for sharing your journey. I know that all of you listeners out there are going to learn from her and come away with just so many pieces to chew on and think about and reflect on later, which I personally love and I'm sure you do too if you're here in this space. So shout out to all of you listeners that continue to check into the podcast each week and listen and grow together in this space. I cherish you dearly and I'm so happy to have you tuning in. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Let's see. Do you have any questions maybe before we start, before we dive in? No, I'm game. I'm I'm ready. I'm on. <laughs> You're on. You're ready to dive in. Okay, well, let's do it then. Okay, I guess my first question would be, how would you introduce yourself? So I'd say, hello, I'm mm-hmm. Amber Mallory, certified sex educator, upcoming TEDx speaker. Ooh, and look at you. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> excited um and soon to be uh, a master's in global health so just another month <laughs> wow that's a lot going on at what time yeah it's yeah. it's a busy month <laughs> yeah absolutely hmm so could you tell me more about how you even came into these various paths I'm sure there's like a story to why you chose to become a sex educator and global all these other pieces of what you're passionate about So I grew up in a rural town in Virginia, Mm -hmm. absolutely no sex education. There's really no hope. (laughs) It was very, you know, I watched a lot of friends get pregnant. I watched a lot of people have kids at a really young age. People were just absolutely clueless. And Mm. I had this real natural draw to sexuality, um, which is very odd because I grew up in a house with all boys and my dad. So I was the only girl and I was just really like, I know there's something more to this. I really want to do this. I didn't know how I didn't know where or in what ways. So Mm -hmm. I started really like engaging with people in school. People were asking a lot of questions. And so I was the one who wasn't scared to go home and try to look them up or try to get things out. And then it like progressed so far. And it's kind of funny because now there's the show Sex Education. And I feel like that's what I was doing in high school. Like not to that extreme, obviously. I didn't have like an office space, but I was definitely wrapping like boxes of condoms up like little gifts 
And then people were taking them home because people were convinced you had to be like over 18 to have them. And where does that come from? (laughs) What? What? I think just like stigma. And also like at Mm -hmm. this time, people were putting them in like the anti um, stealing, like plexi or like plastic box things. I've seen plan B in it as well. Mm -hmm. And so they put the stores. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Not so helpful. then you have to go exactly. Then uh, you have to go to a pharmacist and be like, "Can you open this for me?" And then you have to have the pharmacist being like, "Of course I can." Yeah, uh, like, yeah. yeah. So I always really embraced it. I feel like I thought it was funny to see like what other things I could buy at the same time with the condoms to get like the weirdest <laughs> looks from the cashier. So I okay. feel like I really embraced. Okay. <laughs> so what did you buy together? You have to tell me. I think, well, the first time I bought condoms, it was a good one because it was when I uh, was having sex for the first time Uh and like a friend had given me a condom with my partner and it didn't fit right. So we're like, okay, we need to go buy some, go buy bigger ones. And Mm -hmm. we're like looking around all nervous. And so we had just like the condoms themselves. And then I think we got like chapstick, like flavored chapstick or something like that with it. And I was like 15 at the time and he was 17, but like, in not like a weird vibe way I feel like nowadays people hear that like it was like a year and a half difference so we were pretty close and it was earth day so they were like oh you get a free reusable bag with your purchase and so I had like the reusable bag and I have it to this day like the losing my virginity um (laughs) reusable earth day bag that's so that's and so I was funny. wearing like a dress yeah I just threw this dress on and like ran out the door and the woman was like oh my god aren't you cold like just in this like spaghetti strap dress and I was like no we're just going right back home and she was like oh <laughs> like, so you felt like she knew yeah obviously I wear my buying condoms she was like she was like I know what these fucking kids are about to go do like gee, but at least condoms right like I hope that was her thought process yeah for sure for sure gotta love Target absolutely absolutely <laughs> I love that uh so then okay so at that point your it sounds like your circle your world was not really supportive of what you were pursuing how was that yeah well it was hard I mean I definitely came out to my family about being a a sex educator towards the end of my university career because I entered into university under the premise because in Virginia a lot of people go work in the government that's like the typical kind of thing I grew up on a farm so I was like the outcast but this was what was expected of you. And this is what my family really wanted me to do. And I was like, okay, I'm going to come in and do poli sci. I'm going to go get a job in like the CIA or something. Like this was the perception. And then I was taking all these classes and I was just like, this is awful. I hate Mm. this. So I took a psych class and then I kind of really built a whole curriculum for myself at the university in, in partnership with the formerly known uh, Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. Now they're mm-hmm. SHIP. And yeah, so I really was seeing myself going in this direction. I was really fortifying that for myself. So it was kind of the moment of like, I don't want to lie to my family. I'm an adult. I want to just tell them. So I called yeah. them and I mean like voice shaking. Oh, yeah. Because my brothers were not the kind of people who would go to university and there's nothing wrong with that. That just wasn't the path for them. But when your family has these kind of expectations of you as the one who's going to school, you kind of become like the hope. Mm. And then to be like, okay, I went to school and now I'm going to do and talk about sex all the time was probably like the glass shattering moment. Um, But surprisingly, my grandparents, because I told my grandparents first, actually, and they were a lot more receptive. (laughs) Okay, really interesting. Not what I would expect. Yeah, my grandma is like, she's really incredible. Like, of course, she's older, but I feel like she's someone that's kind of like, if you're going to do it right, then I support that. I don't know how she would have felt if I came out and said, like, I'm a sex worker because I did do sex work at one point. And that's something that my family doesn't know about. Yeah. But I definitely think she was a lot more receptive and was like, okay, like, if that's what makes you happy, like, do it good that's the right answer yeah absolutely exactly and now she knows I mean I write her and I tell her I don't really tell her like I'm doing a TED talk on porn I kind of am just like I'm doing a TED talk you know and hopefully don't ask for the link 
Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I don't know how she would be, but I guess I'll cross that bridge in a month. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Figure it out. Dang. Yeah. And then, yeah, how were your parents? How did they take it? So my dad, I called him and I think he, well, he always was just like, I always knew there was something with you. Um, but <laughs> Does I that think mean he, I'm awesome? <laughs> I think it meant like, we used to have a lot of fights when I was a kid because he's like a very like sexist, misogynist person. Okay. So I was wearing like high heels a lot. Like for me, like women in power wear high heels. And of course that's now I'm older and I understand you can be in power and wear any kind of footwear you want. Absolutely, but like yeah. in my little mind, that was what my thing. Think? So yeah. I wore them. Yeah, I wore them all through school. And he was always like, you're a whore. Like people are going to think this of you. Like you're like just being such a slut. And what oh are people going to say? Yeah, yeah. So we had like a lot of like rows about this kind of stuff. So I think now it was like, I was 20 at the time. I had been in university for three years and I left as soon as I graduated high school. Like the day I graduated, I was Mm. like, goodbye. I'm out. Like, this isn't my culture. This isn't my people. Like, I don't want to be here. So I I think for him, it was just kind of like, he's got to get on or get off. And he seems pretty receptive for a while. And then like five years into it, maybe all of a sudden he just like flipped the switch. I think like post-Trump, his whole kind of demeanor about just being like, all right, whatever, you're you're doing your thing. He he kind of got more like aggressive about it. Which wow. is like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear yeah. about your life. And even these accomplishments I was making and the accolades I was taking on, it, you know, it was irrelevant because it had like sex in front oh, of it. So. Wow. Wow. Which is so yeah. invalidating for all of the things that you're doing and have done to pave this way and get all this education. Yeah. And doing it on my own, you know, like we don't have a lot of money in my family. Like I've always, this is how I got into sex work. I mean, I did what I had to do to get where I wanted to be. And I'm very proud of that, but there's still roots of it. You know, now I feel like I'm 27 now. So it's been like 10 plus years since this kind of really came together. Mm. And yeah, it's hard to sometimes accept where you are like big imposter syndrome. And I think that's definitely where it stems from because you're like, oh, you're just a sex educator. It's not as valid. But then I stop myself and I'm like, wait, like it totally is. There's so many people I admire in this industry. Like, why am I downplaying myself? Absolutely. Well, it's so hard when like the important people in our lives say things like this to sit with that and to try and understand and hold space for where they're coming from and also not let that affect our inner understanding of what we're doing. I mean, that is tricky, messy stuff to do. I mean, the reality of you said earlier at 17 right you're coming out of high school and you know these are not my people this is not my culture like that is so tough to deal with the fact that your family doesn't feel like your culture yeah that's very true (laughs) I never just was associated with them though even when I was younger I was like convinced I was adopted. You couldn't tell me otherwise. And like, it took me a long time to like, accept that like, I really came from these people. And (laughs) it was really like, for me, it was like a moment, but I have so many memories of a kid just like feeling like such a misfit and being like, well, you guys don't love me because you adopted me. And I mean, like my paranoia in this was like so deep rooted. I had like this fear of when I was at the store with my mom, I always thought she was going to just abandon me. Mm -hmm. I was convinced like she's just going to leave because she adopted me. I'm not what she wanted. Like return the gift kind of thing. But I mean, I guess (laughs) it sounds worse than it really felt. But at the time it was just like, I don't relate to you guys. I don't, I don't get this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not feeling connected to them and not knowing if that disconnect could be the reason that they would just leave you at any point. Yeah. And I think it was just very clear to my parents. My parents, I will say like the best part of my upbringing was really just that I was left off Mm -hmm. on my own a lot. So it gave me the skill set to not be scared of change, to not be scared to move to a new country to take something on that seems super overwhelming. And I feel like I really thrive in like the most chaotic of settings Mm -hmm. because of this. But now it's hard to unlearn because my life has really shifted and it's a lot calmer. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm even trying to navigate, like 
I have a supportive partner in my life. I'm making well in my career. Like I'm ticking a lot of boxes that I was striving for my whole life. And now Mm. I'm like, okay, what's next? Where am I going to go? Sure, sure. Yeah, you've been like climbing for these boxes for a long time. And now as you're getting close to the peak, it's kind of like, yeah, what are we doing after this when we're so used to going, going, going? Yeah, Yeah. like things are settling and it's like I could – have a career and just have a job and chill. And it's, yes. I, I can't imagine myself. Chill. Yeah, literally, I can't imagine it. Like I mm. can't fathom having like a single job or like mm. doing one thing in the day, you know, not having school or some study or something going on, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I resonate with that deeply of always having something. And I think, yeah, as you l- probably learned for yourself to navigate, you said change and other sorts of things. I can imagine, yeah, that independence being very key because you were able to, sounds like probably listening to your own path at a very young age. And that takes a lot of guts, strength. And I'm, that's, I'm sure that's a muscle that you've continued to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now I feel like it's hard sometimes, you know, when you grow up in like these traumatic environments and then you talk to people sometimes like my partner comes from like a great home life Aww. like their family Lucky. is absolutely incredible I know lovely what the hell it's <laughs> this happens Honestly, it's so different because in the U.S. it's like I don't know anyone's parents who are still married and here everybody's still married that doesn't necessarily equate to happiness but the people here they say like the nucleus of Spain <laughs> like this is how they say it the nucleus yeah. of Spain is the family and they really resonate with that. And you would think it's like the Catholic roots, yeah. but it really isn't. People here don't get married until they're in their early 30s. Wow. They're having babies a lot later. So they get established, they get a job, they get a, a master's degree, they travel yeah. across the continent, and then they meet someone and they're like, okay, I'm going to settle down with them. It's not like, yeah. I feel like in the US, we're so rushed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To like hit all these various milestones. And I mean, culturally, that makes sense. For a while, I mean, people were getting married at 19, you know, and even younger and younger and younger. So I'd be curious, yeah, what the cultural differences are between the United States and Spain. And I know America tends to have a very like individualistic society compared to Spain and culture, I'd imagine as well, um, which is a little bit more collectivist which affects all yeah. these sorts of things. Hmm. Yeah, people can't fathom. Like, you know, you see something on the news and, and people are like, you can't go to the doctor. Like when COVID happened, I was locked down here. Um, and I mean, my friends in the US were just out, still living their life. And I was like, I'm only allowed to leave the house to go to the store. <laughs> like, wow. it was very, but it was for the the greater good, you know? Like you Absolutely. could get someone else sick. This was kind of the logic and and we when vaccination started happening we have like a really high vaccination rate in Spain like people are really engaged with this like I impact other people and of course like there are people who don't do that you know there were still people who were partying there were still people who are doing this but uh, really a majority of people come together for this kind of thing and in Mm -hmm. Spain what I've really realized is they enjoy their life like they don't Mm. their work is so they can live it's they don't live for their work huge difference from American culture of course yeah I know right I know if we could change all (laughs) these things I think America would be better yeah I totally agree um I'm curious do you think that there's and I'm sure the answer is yes but I'm curious like how you see cultural differences playing out within sex in Spain, Spanish culture, European culture, whatever you're seeing compared to maybe what you grew up with? Yeah. So number one, people don't get circumcised here. (laughs) That's the first thing, like number one. Yeah. But second, I would say there's also a really open sex work culture here. Like it's a lot more common to meet um, European, like male identifying people who have had sex with sex workers and it's a lot more accepted here Mm. whether I wouldn't say necessarily that there's more validation in sex work in that way but I think kind of the stigma of of going to a sex worker isn't as predominant as it is in the U.S. and I mean in some parts of Europe it's legal I mean it really just depends like where you are and then also I think because people have sex older at least what I've really seen in Spain Mm. is the the hookup culture is completely different 
than what I would identify in the U.S. and what I know. Because in the U.S., I feel like we, because we're always like going, 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 we have a lot going on. We're used to kind of, I would say almost like drive through, you know, you Mm -hmm. get on Tinder, you get on Hinge, you meet someone, you decide if that's it. Because I feel like in the U.S., we always have this trajectory to like marriage. Mm. Whereas here, people go out with their friends. And if they end up hooking up with someone, like that's great. And if they don't, that's also great. It's really interesting because you go to a bar in Spain and like until about four in the morning, it's like this, girls and boys. Like Mm. it's very interesting because people really come and they're just like, I'm going with my friend. And then kind of the desire kicks in. But I would say people don't necessarily go out with expectation of like, I'm going to go out and meet someone tonight and take them home. Like it's not a big vibe. Absolutely. Yeah. A little bit less of that like expectation. Yeah. Mm. But in Germany, woof, the German people, they are, they will just tell you right to your face, like, come home with me. And you're just like, (laughs) I am at a crossroads. (laughs) I hope that was a question. Yeah. It's really like, they really are so blunt. And I've heard that before. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm so blunt, too. And then someone, I'm always used to being, like, the aggressor. Mm-hmm. So when I was being pursued, I was like, whoa. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> it just happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So caught me off guard. Definitely Absolutely. different. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, aggressor. Could you tell me more if you're willing? I'd be curious. What does that mean for you? Of course. So basically, so in my stint in high school, you know, I was wearing the high heels, I did my makeup, you know, I had I was very confident. And I feel like typically when you're 15, 16, 17, these are your awkward years, right? Like you have braces, and you don't really know what to do with your hair. And like, you don't really know how to walk and you have really bad acne. I got really lucky. And I knew what I did with my hair. And I didn't really have acne. And so I just came to school. And I was like, I don't care what anyone fucking says to me. Like, off everybody yeah Um, and I really embrace a lot of the rumors people would say about me and sometimes I'd even perpetuate my own rumors so I feel like (laughs) I was the aggressor in like everything in my life and I think this also stems from just like my combative nature of my household so Mm. um I the type of guys that I was interested in because I'm a pansexual but in high school I wouldn't dare try to decipher whether some other person was kind of willing to take that venture with me so it was easier to just kind of like target like people with penises like male identifying people in my school but I really like the nerds like proper super nerds I used to sit at the table with like the most awkward gangly um, (laughs) boys in the class Mm -hmm. and I was like so aggressive like there was one boy in specific and his name was Kenneth but no one knows where I'm from so they won't know which Kenneth this is so I used to walk into my history class and I would sit on his desk and I would just be like Kenneth like when are we gonna go out like when are we gonna do something and I never got with Kenneth, unfortunately, but I tried very hard. And for many years, I was always yeah. like, whenever you're ready, like yeah. I'm here. I also, I feel like I always was barking up the wrong tree though, because another guy I was interested in, like later expressed to me that they identify as asexual. Uh-huh. And that was my first exposure to someone who was asexual when I was like 17. And I was like, really whoa, young. yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. It's different right because we're taught that like men are the aggressors and so I was already kind of going against the grain by being so aggressive but then to be aggressive and not have that like reciprocated in a way it was very Mm. interesting but I feel like it was a really good lesson to learn because it was to really learn and understand that like just because someone has a penis doesn't mean they're the most sexually aggressive, like hypersexual person ever. Like totally like these kind of ideas that we have for people. And this is even what my research, I'm doing research right now for my master's. And I Mm -hmm. ask explicitly, you know, what expectations do you have of cisgender men, of cisgender women, gay men, gay, uh, lesbian women, And I compare people who are watching ethical and mainstream pornography. Mm. And it's interesting what I'm really seeing right now is the people who are watching mainstream are saying like men, aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. But then in the uh, ethical pornography, people are like, 
pleasing, like attentive, mm-hmm. engaging. So it's it's like still aggressive, but not entirely. It's more like uh, the way I'm uh, assessing yeah. it yeah. is I'm using um, active participation and inactive participation mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. explain it. So I would consider like inactive participation as like being submissive, you know, kind sure. of being taken along for the ride. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not being participatory because they're being submissive, but for the sake of this study and having to like code everything and find a general theme that kind of encapsules everything everyone's saying. Yeah. (laughs) So disclaimer, just because you're um, subbing doesn't mean that you're an inactive participant. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, subs have the most power at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're setting the boundaries. So at the end of the day, the submissive person has all the power Truly. Exactly. So yeah, absolutely. But in terms of coding and all that sort of stuff, I, I get that. Yeah. You got to find that theme that's through all this. That can be super tricky. That's interesting. And you have to let them lead you to it. That's absolutely. the other thing is like, you can't just be like, you know, you can say like, I deducted that they would say this, but then you have to say like, but everything they said led, led to, to this. this. And, and then in the discussion, you get to be like, but here's all the contingencies associated with that. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I'm totally following with you. <laughs> I'm also thinking, well, one, I think this points to the importance of media and what sort of, you know, when we think about sex, sex is because of our society, so private um, that when I try to think about how to have sex, well, I don't actually have that many models for me to look at, right? Okay, so how do I do this sex thing? You go onto the internet and this is what you see. Oh, okay, so like maybe, wasn't there, I don't know, I saw a TikTok that said the stat, this is, that's a horror, I can't believe I just said that. I saw a TikTok that said the stat was that the Social media is really a new news outlet. You're not incorrect in this. Like it's always good to double check, but it's great to find like the little spark and then we follow the trail. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Cause my inner like, you know, doctoral students like Nicole fact check, fact check this before you say (laughs) that shit. And I'm like, ah, okay. But they said um, that it was the average person has slept with seven people and whatever the stat is, I bet you it's something close like that. Do you know? I've heard that. I would say I'm supremely far off from that, but I've heard that too. As we should. You know what I mean? But um, if you've had seven people in your life to experience this with, that's what you're going to presume is the norm. And when that's reflected from porn, oh, this is the norm. This is actually how I play out my gender role, even on top of that, right? Like, I mean, I think what I'm what's coming up for me now is like you were talking about being an aggressor right and like this sort of like connotation you're asking about what it means to have sex with someone that's a cis hetero man or a cis het woman or you know any of these labels I think um yeah media is just so profoundly influential in how we see what we can and should be doing with our bodies and it's really becoming so much more mainstream right because now I feel like we're shifting and we're having a lot of these conversations around sex, which is wonderful. But I feel like the conversations aren't yet pointed in the right direction. Like Mm. euphoria, when I was talking to my supervisors, you know, and I posed them this whole idea about we're going to do this thing on porn and how it, how it's reflective of our global health and blah, blah, blah. And my supervisor was like, have you seen euphoria? I was just watching it. And it made me think of your thesis because Maddie's character Mm -hmm. talks about how she learns about sex and how she has sex as she watched porn from a young age and she learned to do that and she doesn't even necessarily enjoy it as much as she just enjoys the the repercussions of that of like she can get Nate to to do certain things or she can have this certain reaction to what she's doing but it seems like she's very disconnected from her own sexuality and I mean you can see that radiate through her personality no spoilers but absolutely (laughs) take a critical look and and the same with like all of these characters and now this is such a very popularized show and we're bringing about this pornography thing and this is kind of what I'm trying to talk about like in the research and everything is like the issue is porn in a sense because obviously porn is being projected through like a white heteronormative cisgender lens And this is what's really being like pushed out into the world. 
But also there's this ethical pornography or equitable or uncensored sex education that is also there. And to discredit pornography is also to discredit the people who are trying to make a difference mm-hmm. and who are trying to, to do things and to, to uh, tackle the taboos in our society and also create a, a platform for sex workers to speak up and really become engaged in the work instead of like vessels for like these systems of power to like perpetuate kind of these norms Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a lot it's a lot going on and people think like porn period and I'm like no there's so much more yeah absolutely there's so much more to it than what we think or what we can see I think um because it's so private because I don't I mean, I've, I've tried to actually radically change this, and this is something I do now, but, like, in the past, I didn't just come up to my friends and be like, oh, like, yeah, so I watched this porn, this one was gray, this sort of that. Like, we don't have that openness in our community even, to even talk about this to then, therefore, share resources like we would in any other sort of media. Euphoria, oh, I watched this, you should watch it, right? That level of spread, but because it's so private yeah. here, we're like... I can't tell you, you know, what I watch later, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting too, because now I'm in a, a, a master's class and it, since it's a global health master's, we have people from all over the world. Mm. And I was actually approached from someone who um, is from sub-Saharan Africa okay. and they were discussing with me. They were like, so you're a sex educator. Like I have a lot of questions because I'm not really taught anything at all. Like the way it works in my country is basically when you get married, the men, like the people with penises. So when I'm speaking in this, this is like from her. So when she yeah. says the men, this is how she means it. Um, so the men go to a class where they learn, this is how your wife should have sex with you. And then the women go to a class where it's like, this is how you need to have sex with your husband. Like this is how you need to please him. And it's all about demonstrating your ability to be like submissive and sexually satisfying. And it peaks at the end of these classes before you get married, where you have to demonstrate through dance and through song to the maternal figures in your your husband's life, as well as in your life. So you have to be with the aunties and the mothers and the sisters and this to demonstrate that you can satisfy their son, nephew, whatever. And the reason for this is if your partner cheats on you and there's a strong chance that they will just because of the culture in that Mm. specific country and the associations with like male and kind of the expectations men believe they have to meet that when they cheat on you or if they cheat on you, the mother of the groom gets to say, well, I know she can hold it down. So it's Mm. not her fault. It's him. Mm. So it's just really wild um, when you uh, look at this because they really don't know uh, much about themselves. But in the same breath, they also have like this very erotic practice where um, my friend is from and they stretch like the labias. So in like terms of global health, people would call this mutilation. But like in this country context, it's like a consensual thing. And it actually like, in colonizers lens, it wouldn't be great because right, it promotes like lesbianism because girls help each other. They're massaging Mm. their vulvas. They're like doing a lot of touching from a young age. And like, as a result of that, they're stretching the labia, which is different from our culture, right? Where the labias have to be really pulled in. Yeah. So it's just interesting that like they kind of originate from this and then it turns into um, when you get older, well, Mm -hmm. you know, all this pleasure and all this uh, exploration you had, now we're going to shut it down and you're just with this one person and you have to put it down for them all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, such a different cultural dynamic there. That's yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And too that like at the end of the day, the determination of of that scenario of cheating comes down to the motherhead. You know, it's just it's it's interesting to see where women's power is and women's power isn't. You know, like at that yeah. end, determination is is a woman, right, within that culture. But then to yeah, see so much of it as a giving rather than a mutual exploration of pleasure. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd be curious. How did your friend look at that experience? I'm sure compared to maybe they what you were me. saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. Oh, <laughs> they told me they um, they questioned it always, in which I was like, mm-hmm. incredible. I'm really proud of you. 
you know, I, I really tried to validate them in this moment because uh, when they were talking to me about kind of what I did, they were like, you know, will you show me some resources? Will you show me where to look? Can we go about finding ways to let me explore? And almost yeah. like she needed someone to give her permission in that moment. Mm. And I was very happy to do that. So when we went out and they explained everything to me and kind of, I was giving them all of the the resources and they were expressing this. It just, I'm sorry, I'm getting myself <laughs> circles. What was your original question? Not, nothing, <laughs> I guess. 10 o'clock. So I just like, I've been like all day going. And so I feel like I, I've just been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just for took sure. myself somewhere sure. and oh, I, I was in the moment and I lost where you were I was good. Here. You are so good. We're going to take a deep breath. Ah, yes, we are good. No worries at all. Um, I guess yeah, I it's just an it's a it's a it's a different cultural practice. I think it'd be very mm-hmm. interesting to talk to your friend, you know, maybe hey, nom- nominate them for the show because that'd be an interesting thing just to gauge with um the differences in the sexual education that they received compared to what you teach and what, you know, I've Mm -hmm. experienced all these different things. It's uh, fascinating to think about the culture with which all these dynamics lie in changes everything. Of course. And you have to think about like the historical harm of like being a sex educator, right? Like Mm. it's really brave of her to approach me because if you think about it, like colonizers, like colonialism, like how it kind of affected her country And then you're approaching someone and you're in kind of Europe right now. And you're approaching someone from like the Western world, the global North. And yeah, you're, you're asking me these questions and it's kind of an interesting moment. Obviously I offered resources to people I knew Mm -hmm. who kind of may be able to navigate this a bit better as well. I can help. And like, I feel like part of my job as a sex educator is also not to know everything or to know when to step back. And say, Absolutely. look, like I could probably tell you something, but I know in this specific context, you may need someone who can support you in different ways that like I mm-hmm. as a white person, I as like a cisgender person, like at, in this kind of dynamic, I may not be able to do this. So it's not always about getting your name out there and just taking everyone on that you can. It's a, it's a moment to like really network and meet great, incredible people and learn from them and mm-hmm. also learn enough to say, okay, here's a brief and now follow through there. And I think mm-hmm. that's just another way to uplift like our, our BIPOC friends, right? You know, like to kind of help because the sex education world is very white mm-hmm. and that's, you know, it's not necessarily my specific job to kind of dilute that necessarily but also in the same way it is my job right Mm -hmm. like I didn't build the system to be like this but I am responsible to conduct the changes and kind of take space at the right times and make space at other times and there's often a lot of opportunities I would love to really engage in but I know like that's not my moment my moment is to uplift this person or invite this person or take on this person you know absolutely absolutely and I think it's so wise that you you mentioned yeah it's not our job to know everything and to recognize where we step out of a boundary of what is our experience to speak about what is our experience to have advice on yeah I think that is so wise to be able to know those boundaries so that we can yeah it's not your job to dilute the system but as someone that's in the system being also conscious of the power that we have to therefore, yeah, pause when we need to. I think that's really wise. Yeah. I think this comes from just expanding your community, you know, Mm -hmm. like when I was a baby sex educator and like this toxic American mindset, you have this, you get this competitiveness when you're a Mm -hmm. kid, you know, like it's so, you know, finish your work and then you don't have to help anyone else and, and, and just get everything done and do the best for yourself. Put the blinders on, just go forward. And then you get into the adult world and they're like, but network and networking is great. But then I learned as like a sex educator, like there's always room for everyone at the top. And, and it's really time to help. Like if it's not your moment right now, it's not your moment. That's okay. Like your moment is coming, but Mm -hmm. you really shouldn't hinder other people's moments. Like that's, ugly. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. There's space for everyone at the table, right? Like there is always space. So yeah, not this like, and again, kind of what we were talking about earlier, the American 
ideological value system, perspective, paradigm, whatever words we want to use is (laughs) competition, capitalism. No, like this is all for me. I'm going to hoard it at the top. Like it's a radically different view. Yeah. To even be like, no, there's space at this table for everybody. And I don't have to like squish down the other people. We can all raise everyone up to the same level. Exactly. All about equity. I remember like one of my mentors mentioned equity to me and I was Mm. just like, you know, because you're always taught equality, equality, equality. And they were like, no, it's about equity. And, and one of the things I really like about my master's program is they also, when we started engaging in these conversations in terms of like global North and global South, they were like equity. And I was like, I'm in the right place because we're Mm. saying equity and we're not saying equality right now. And that's really how it needs to be. Yeah, for the listener who maybe doesn't understand the difference, could you just like briefly, yeah. So I feel like this is always depicted in this picture, right? Of three people of different height. There's someone very, very short. There's someone very, very tall. And then there's someone of like medium height. And they're Mm -hmm. standing at a fence to watch a baseball game. And, and, And equality is everyone gets one box and they're standing on the one box. So, you know, if you're the really short person, you still can't see over the fence. If you're the really tall person, you saw over the fence to begin with, but now you're really seeing over the fence. And if you're the person of medium height, you know, you're kind of peeking over. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas equity would mean the shorter person is going to get two boxes, the medium height person is going to get one. So to kind of sum it all up uh, after painting that picture, it's just equity is about people get what they need to get to be on the same level as you. Mm-hmm. And this is why I really advocate for like lived experience, right? Because not everybody can go to these um, a- academic, these universities, to these to these conferences. You know, it costs yeah. money to get a certification, Absolutely. to fly out to a conference, to put yourself in a hotel, to, to do all of this stuff. It's really hard. And a lot of this stuff is gatekept. So we have to recognize that people have lived experience, right? They don't necessarily need to have like CSE behind their name to be a certain, you know, you're not a certified sex educator, but maybe you've been a sex worker for so many years and then you studied what you could and you went to like community college classes or maybe you just have your own understanding of things. And that's great. Mm -hmm. And, and this goes back to like regulating yourself, knowing when you can step in and knowing when you can step out. And I feel like if we promote this more, along with lived experiences, we create better educators and better educational Absolutely. systems, Absolutely. because we're going to validate people too, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's a long history of privatization of education intellectual ideas creating various fields like the medical field that you know i'm reading this interesting book that has been talking about how the medical field kind of started and was exactly that like all these white men that were like really wealthy educators trying to just do a lot of interesting things like you know the leeches and stuff when we actually had a lot of healers that weren't necessarily with that profession, with that degree before that degree even started, but knew a lot more like herbalist remedies that were actually really helpful. And like, Mm -hmm. yet we had all the money being poured into this space, which eventually like with all things, there's good, bad, right? We've learned so much from this field and like, obviously it benefits. Yes. But like, it's very interesting to take a step back, I think, and look at the different ways of having knowledge right not all of it is really kept up in these systems of higher education with tons of loans myself um and (laughs) conference you know and conferences and all this stuff like it is a hundred percent gatekeeping and it has been for decades so yes a hundred percent that listening to people's lived experience is so so valuable yes And I will say what we learned too in school is if you want to have a good health intervention, Mm -hmm. you have to engage with the community and you have to engage, even if you think you're the best medical doctor from Harvard or from London or from Geneva or or Brussels, whatever, you have to engage with the traditional healers because they're engaged with the community and Mm -hmm. they have a repertoire and a history with this community and people trust them. They're community leaders. So if you're going to try to create any kind of intervention, you can't just come in and devalidate everything. You have to recognize that these um, traditional healers, these community leaders, they can help you to achieve what you need to achieve without losing the cultural context, 
and just the culture in general. Like we have to stop erasing culture and saying everybody has to be like the like Europeans or like yeah. Americans, you know? And this becomes problematic because these kinds of interventions that we can pull off in a in a wealthier country, you can't pull off in a lower middle income mm. country. Mm-hmm. You can't just show up with a bunch of money and give people ultrasounds and be like, okay. We're going to solve all the maternal health problems because people aren't trained. People don't know how to do this, you know? Yeah. But. <laughs> like, yeah, and there's systems. All circles. There's lots yeah. of systems here, right? You can't, yeah, coming with an ultrasound isn't going to fix the fact that there's malnutrition at home, right? Like there, there's just different levels to these complex things that are healing. And so, yeah, I, I think you're hitting on a lot of important things of recognizing the lived experience of people, the cultural experience and understanding that is unique to the people that are in those communities. And that, yeah, there's different levels of systems here that we have to be conscious of as educators, as healers, as people, as white people in the space of recognizing, mm-hmm. yeah, when do we shut up, right? Yeah. And when do we, yeah, cont- yeah, when do we shut up, you know? Yeah. No, it's true. And I've had this conversation. I I gave a seminar in my university for my master's and it's different, right? Because you're like a student and then you switch into like kind of this different position and you're looking at your friends like, yeah, yeah. you're trying to maintain seriousness. And there's my master's is pretty predominantly white women Mm -hmm. with the minus like a few people from sub-Saharan Africa but overall, it's virtually all women. There's three men in the entire masters and one is a white man. And they're the absolute, they're always trying to derail any conversations on colonizers, on like men, on anything. Like they, mm. they try to derail it. And so I, um, in the class, I kind of posed this idea to them. Like, look, how do you identify? Like if your identities don't matter to you, like you have a privilege with that. Like Mm -hmm. if it doesn't matter that you are white and it doesn't make a difference when you go out of this door and it doesn't matter when you have to look for a job, like then you have a privilege, right? Because everyone else has to live as black or they have to live as indigenous or they have to live Mm -hmm. as like Latino or Hispanic or whatever, like these different kinds of Jewish even, like people have these different kinds of backgrounds. Exactly. And queer. Yeah. Like it, it, it dives into like so many layers and you just sit up here and you don't want to have these conversations, but you also think like your voice is the most relevant and it's Mm. because you're taught your voice is the most relevant. And now it's a moment where you need to to be quiet and listen. Yeah. And, and it's, that's, I feel like that's been the hardest thing Mm. in this class is honestly, you have, sometimes you have these people speaking and you're just like, now's not the time, babe. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 (laughs) That is something that I'm always trying to work on in my class too. Like my classes, I'm like, okay, when do I just stop uh, speaking and and listen? I think that's one of the biggest ideals I'm trying to come to is having a space of, yeah, not offering advice and listening, listening way, way more than I speak. I'm curious – I want to ask you a question about something that might take us down a different topic. How are you tired? It's like ten o'clock. How do you? No, know? we can we can navigate more. I'll I'll okay. give you a, okay. a sign. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me. This is a little bit different, but we're talking about different identities and pieces. And I'm curious if I could chat with you about something that came up for me that you might maybe understand. I'm in this intro to feminist class, intro to feminist therapy, and. The first day of coming into this class, I noticed an immediate like pushback from me to even talk about women, men, like, or just women in general, kind of like you, mm-hmm. and I, w- I was picking up on this in your language, right? Of saying people with penises, people with vulvas, that sort of like degendered language that I've been coming into through my own community and people on this mm-hmm. space. And so coming back into a class that was strictly like, oh, women, women, women are th- women. And then I'm like, whoa. And it brought up for a lot for me of like, I want to say people with vulvas. I want to take that off. But I'm, I I don't have any formulated ideas. I'm just curious how you look at this dichotomy of like how you speak about people and gendered language. Yeah. And yeah. So my personal view is I definitely, as I've gotten older, because when I was when I was a baby sex educator in yeah. high school, you know, this was like so far sure. from anything I had even touched on. I was thinking about like blowjobs and anal sex and like, this was just a whole other layer to sexuality. Um, but as I got older, I mean, I really 
try to lead with my pronouns and mm -hmm. to lead with these kinds of degendered language. And it's hard sometimes. I slip up. I, I have like one specific incident that haunts me to this day. I went to the Woodhall Sexual Freedom mm -hmm. Summit and I was, I didn't code switch because I was back in rural Virginia and I was talking to people in rural Virginia and you say like, yes, ma'am and no, ma'am. And I, oh. I, I went to uh, this sexual freedom event and you know you're they degender the bathrooms and all this stuff and I instinctively said like thank you ma'am to someone and they like stopped me and they were like I'm not ma'am and mm. I like to this day it's been like Feel six that. years and I still think about it and mm. I'm like I am the worst person ever like I can't believe it and but sometimes we have this reaction right like now we need to go oh, fix yeah. it and we need to be like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and like Sometimes you just have to say like, I'm so sorry and just walk away from it. And mm -hmm. now because of this really awful memory, I really try, even if I'm in a space where people aren't degendering the language, I try to speak in that way yeah. if the situation allows me to, you know, if the conversation is so specified to something, like if we're yeah. talking about like female genital modification, okay. Mm -hmm maybe it's in this specific context and because I'm around medical doctors I'll use kind of this more binary terminology mm. but I mean I really when I I try as much as I can and it's hard I mean it's really hard because sometimes you feel like you say something and you feel that shift because everybody has that moment of oh shit yeah you know and then you feel like you instigated the oh shit moment mm -hmm. um, and so it's hard to kind of almost be like a fire starter mm. but you know, this is kind of where it, it's almost in a way like our duty. <laughs> like, I wouldn't say that it's our duty because, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? It's our duty in a sense, but it's not my responsibility. It, it's the facilitator's responsibility, but it's hard. It's yeah. hard to kind of pose that and bring it up. Or maybe it's even something like you could talk about at the end of class. If you feel like if it's oh. relevant, you know, I mean, like, for for sure. I mean, I um we had like a discussion. Well, first I want to say I I miss, you know, um pronoun people and it happens and I've had that same experience where you're just like, "Oh my god, like I am such a horrible human." Oh, fuck. And like sitting with that, but also being like the apology and recognizing that we can take from that the ability to learn and like get better and no have the compassion because we're dealing with a lot of schemas exactly like you said, code switching between a dynamic mm -hmm. of that world which expects that of you and also the other worlds of what we're trying to do of hold space for people's pronouns and all of that that's hard to switch between the cultural expectations so we're gonna have compassion for ourselves it happens to me oh yeah yes and we're not perfect it's hard no <laughs> and that's, i think not. people think that it's like a diet in some people's mind you know like if you don't stick to it you mess you mess up once you might as well throw it all away and yeah. it's not like that like it's okay to mess up. Like it totally is like we mess up, like the professionals mess up. You know, the point is to really try to make the conscious effort not to. Right. And at the end of the day, when I feel pain inside that I messed up, it's because I care about this other person before me and I want them to feel safe. I want to reflect back that I see them for the person that they are. And so at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I'm trying to love and I've messed up. So like, we can come back to compassion for all parties in this scenario, right? And of the apology and having compassion for ourselves. I hope these are the right answers to understanding these navigating these emotions that come up when we feel so horrible. Part of my class has discussion posts. And so immediately after that, I posted on the discussion. I was like, is feminism, uh, is feminism upholding a problematic gender binary? You know, I was like I, curious. I Yes, fire started. <laughs> yeah. Like I see smoke. Yes, was, yes, yes. It was interesting, and because I was feeling that where I was like, oh, like people with vulvas, but there, there is also this reality that there. Um, someone compared it kind of like to the understanding like Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, and the problematic nature mm -hmm. of that. But that by erasing women and the concept of women, uh, we're also erasing a whole identity piece that a lot of people identify with yeah so I no, was really struck by that too where I was like I want more space I want more gender fluidity I want that and then also trying to hold space for the reality that 
some people do really identify, I guess, and technically I, I do identify as a non-binary woman, whatever that wants to mean for myself, right? Um, but I still do use that label and there are a lot of people that use that label. So then like, how can we hold space for both? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know it's so hard. It's, it's always, and this is what I always tell people too, is like the space is always changing. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's so valuable to have community yeah. because, you know, using this kind of language, it's true. Like you pose a good point of like, it could be like a ratio of like people who are trans, like just because like vulva owning equals people like that uh, equals people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking like trans. So I'm thinking people Yeah, <laughs> not to discredit anyone with who doesn't have a vulva as people. Absolutely. <laughs> like kind of this idea of uh, vulva equals woman. Mm-hmm. And no, it's totally true. And uh, it's so great to always be like reminded of these things and to be thinking about it, right? Because sometimes we just get so stuck in this kind of realm and speaking it with mm-hmm. such neutrality mm. that we believe we're being neutral and we're really not. So absolutely, you know, absolutely. Nice yeah. Little- yeah. It's interesting. I, I guess ways maybe to combat that is like when we, we understand that people can be socially conditioned and identify as various labels. So but I think one big thing is like, yeah, if we're talking in class about or in any conversation, right, about abortion, making sure to say we're not just saying, oh, this is a women's rights issue, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. is a women, people with vulvas, wombs issue. Like, how do we have language that reflects all of that in that whole space? Yeah. Menstruators. Yeah. There's so many different, there's so much different terminology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I I really, I I try to stick with just like asking people. I mean, it's, it's hard, but it's true. Sometimes you just, you slip up and you don't think about it or you think you're in a space where maybe this wouldn't be brought up and then you play it too safe and it's difficult. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Because my whole class keeps talking about women and I'm just like, damn, whew, you know? What does that mean? Do you know how many times I've asked that question? Almost every (laughs) class I've literally been like, and so at the end of the day, what does it mean to be a woman? Yeah, no, because I think it's a great question because it's not the vulva. It's not my hormones. Let's be clear. It's not the size of my clitoris or any in between Mm -hmm. of that intersex, right? Like, I don't know what it means to be a woman. It is an identity choice and it is what it is for that lived person's experience, right? At the end of the day, if if they resonate with that label, they do. Because, yeah, I think trying to box it into any sort of thing, it excludes people's lived experience. You know what I mean? Of what it means to be a woman. (sighs) Complicated ideas. Very complicated. I I love it. Yeah, (laughs) no, but it's great conversation, right? Like it's always – I feel like the other thing about this too is – because of like the culture now and like because of cancel culture and stuff like that, I feel like people are even scared to ask questions because Absolutely. they feel like that's the end, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's hard because then people live in ignorance because mm-hmm. of fear. Yeah. Um, because they're scared to reach out for help because they're scared of asking the wrong questions Absolutely. or or doing something. And we really have to humble ourselves sometimes. Like I said, like you can have all the accolades and you can still say the wrong thing because you're out of touch or you don't have the right community or you're not listening at the right time. Or sometimes you just screw up. You had like a yeah. day and you were just off and it just didn't hit the same and you, you made the wrong choice. So like if anyone's listening, you know, it's okay to fuck up. Absolutely. It's okay to, to not know. And it's okay to ask for help. Like a hundred percent. We all do it. We, anyone who says they, they don't do it. They're lying to you. We absolutely. All absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I keep trying to tell myself it's not when will I mess up? When will I say something problematic mm-hmm. on the podcast? Um, or <laughs> sorry, sorry, not if like, but like when, not if, Maybe one day this might happen, but when, you know, like I know it's going to happen because naturally I'm a fallible Mm -hmm. human. I am going to fuck up. I am going to say things that are wrong and I'm going to be corrected in that and I'm going to continue to learn and like how can you allow yourself the reality that instead of being like, oh, I fucked up. I'm a horrible person. No, I fucked up. I want to learn. I want to learn from this. How can I continue to grow and be better? I think that's really like the important way to direct it. I've even seen some sex educators going as far as to teach classes on like how to apologize and like, Ooh, accept. Yeah. and it's, it's, you hear it and you're like, what? 
And then you really think about it and you're like, if you're faced with such a complex situation, like you misread a situation or you misgendered someone or you said kind of the wrong thing and you had all this backlash, like maybe you're just so paralyzed, you don't know how to move forward. So this gives you an opportunity to like navigate the harm you caused and educate and learn and like grow from that. Because it's true, like even if you do fuck up, like you do cause harm, like that's the thing. That's what haunts me about that that day at the Woodhall Sexual Freedom Summit. And I hope that this person I misgendered doesn't think about this moment as much as I do because I think about it all the time. So um, yeah, it's hard to, to face that feeling in a public setting. Absolutely. 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 And yeah, myself included have, when that happens, you're almost just like, fuck, what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And it's, it's scary. And it's so scary because you think you can lose everything, you know, Yeah. you're not a Kardashian. You don't get to just live life as if nothing else matters in the world, you know, like we're regular people who a lot of what we do doesn't pay bills. It doesn't pay the crippling student debt, you know, like <laughs> yes. it, it it gets us by and like Absolutely. we really get by on just like the the joy we have and the connection we have with people. And so when that connection is, is put in harm, mm-hmm. it's like your whole existence is kind Absolutely. of put into question. So yeah. you're like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> what yeah. the fuck did I just do? Right. And to know that you cause someone harm, like that's just hard to sit with, right? That's Mm -hmm. just, uh, yeah, that's so heavy to know that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I think, (laughs) I mean, I'm listening and hearing questions on how to apologize and to like navigate that as smoothly as we can. I think those are great resources and things to educate people about because that's something that I've had where it's like, yeah, is it worse to apologize now? Do I just let it slip? I mean, like these are all the things that you're navigating Mm -hmm. in that split microsecond of misgendering someone of how do I now correct this situation? Yeah. It's tough. Very true. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I can transition now to a closing question unless you have anything that's lingering that maybe we didn't hit on that you feel like you really wanted to hit today. I think we're going to close it out because I think my day is starting to hit now. But I'm really enjoying this and I'm having the best fucking time. I want you to know like deep in my soul, I'm like, oh my God, so great. Yes, absolutely (laughs) good. I'm so glad. Well, then I'll ask you the one closing question that I ask everyone on the podcast, which is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Take your time. No rush. Yeah, let me me sit with this. Let my brain lag kick Mm -hmm. in. I think I wish people knew that it was more normal not to be empowered. It's okay to not be empowered necessarily and to go on the journey to find that empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm still learning what that is. My empowerment changes daily and how I'm I'm seeking this. And I, like I said, I'm 27 now and I'm realizing like a lot of my validation, I thought I was validating myself, but it turns out I was being validated by everyone else being like, what the fuck are you doing? So now yeah. I'm like, okay, no one is asking me what the fuck am I doing? So what the fuck am I doing? You know? So yeah. <laughs> um, it's okay to not necessarily know where you are and to not be as empowered as you'd like to believe you are. And it's definitely mm. okay to fake it, Yeah. but take that journey with yourself, take that road and realize that the road never ends and you're always going to be navigating that. And that's the beauty of empowerment is that mm. it is lifelong. It's a lifelong yeah. process. Yeah. It sounds like learning to become empowered or hmm what are some other ways we could say this yeah like I also I'm it's late so I feel no, like I I'm could be you. like vibing this so hard in my head and then like in reality I'm just like well, making no sense at no. all you know like that high thought process of like you know like how do we blink if like our eyes never close hey, like I'm, that weird like I am all for high st- <laughs> thoughts like I am all for that level of creativity that comes out when we're high so absolutely um what I I felt like I was hearing was like this openness to the beginner's mindset this openness to 
to growth, right? To normalizing yes. that. Yeah. When you're growing, there might be changes that can feel very disempowering as you come into a new space, kind of like what you were saying and recognizing, oh, my locus of control I thought was so internal, but has been so external all this time. So now mm-hmm. when you're recognizing that and becoming conscious in that, that's painful and in many ways disempowering of the concept of self that you used to have. So yeah, it seems like holding space for growth and holding space for yes. the beginner's mindset. My interpreter, literally, I can say this with whole truth of I couldn't have said it oh. better. Myself. <laughs> you did great. I could not have said that as yes. well as you did. Yes, it's a dynamic we created together. <laughs> so oh, it was such Thank a pleasure. Thank you for like feeling yeah. the vibe. <laughs> Absolutely, always. That is my job. That is my job. <laughs> but yes, it was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And you know, it, it made light of like this being the last thing to do today. So now I get to go to bed really happy and like feeling very fulfilled. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anywhere you want to plug for your work and all of your your upcoming TED talk, you know, or well, by the time this is released, it will probably, it will probably be out. So, cause this will be in like late August. Okay. Yeah. So TED will be out. So I'm Amber Mallory, Mallory with an E, not an O. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Sex School's platform that's at Sex School Hub. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but I'm not as active as I should be, but that's Amber period Mallory, M-A-L-L-E-R-Y. And you can look me up and watch my TED Talk, check out some of my research. I have a piece on male birth control acceptability coming out. And also my thesis, hopefully I'll get that published eventually. <laughs> so oh, yeah, you will, you will, you will. I will yeah. At this moment, you're, I'm like climbing. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I, know that feeling. I hope I know so. that feeling, yes. <laughs> but um, I really just want to thank you for the space and the platform and the, the interpretation. Of course, <laughs> of course. Happy to hold this space and get to get to share it with fellow educators in the space. It's always a pleasure just to bounce off ideas and yeah. to be changed through conversation. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. The network, expanding the network. And I Absolutely. will say one last thing to everyone, like yeah. network, meet people, take opportunities, even things you don't think you'll get. I didn't think I was going to get this TED talk. I didn't think I was going to get the internship a million years ago that really set me in this direction. Like, go for it write people on LinkedIn, write people on Instagram. It can, it can put you in the right direction. You can meet the right people. And I can't tell you how many times I've just sent like an email to someone or received an email to someone spontaneously and been like, yeah, I'm I'm down to help, whatever. Yeah. Do it. And if you want to be a sex educator, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Be open to connection, to community. You never know what you might find when you're a little bit more open. Yeah. Like we said, there's always room at the table. So when you're ready to come eat, we're here, here for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.